you know, it's a highlight of my week coming together and just worshiping with God's people, and it, it nourishes my soul, and I, I hope it's the same for you. I hope the Lord really meets you and encourages you and nourishes you and draws you close during this time. Uh, during this morning, we're going to look at Hebrews 2. We're going to just follow on with the theme. Man, this is a really full cup of water. Whoever the deacon of the week is, they did a good job. I'm going to try to be really thirsty and drink that. Hebrews 2, and we're going to look at around uh, verse 5 to 18 this week, piggybacking on our worship theme. And, and I've, I've had a couple people say, well, why are you bouncing out of Second Peter? And I, I like to preach three or four in a book that we're working through and then, and then come back to something else that I've been chewing on or another text I've been praying through. Um, and so that, that'll kind of be our pattern to preach three or four out of Second Peter, and then we'll go somewhere else for one Sunday and just pick up a particular theme that, that maybe uh, would be helpful for us to, to preach and teach on. So let me just read to you. I'll flip there, my Bible. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 to 18. Or actually 5 to 11. Now it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one origin. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Let's stop there. Let's just pray for our time. Heavenly Father, we just reflect now upon the distance that is between a polluted man, a very, very imperfect man, and a holy, very perfect God, and the shame that comes because of that distance in relationship and who we are in character and our actions. Lord, I thank you for sending Christ to bridge that gap, to take the shame of our sins upon himself on the cross. He bore the shame. He bore our guilt. He hung upon a tree so that we might be brought close, so the shame of sin might be done away with. And now we are close. All those who put their faith in Christ and repented from their sins have been brought near. And so you tell us, you give us these great commands to now boldly come to the throne of grace. Come to me. The way is open. I've been drawn close. You've come. We've been rescued through Christ taking our shame on the cross. And we just praise you for that. Teach us this morning, Lord, 
Give us eyes to see our own heart and apply your word deeply and profoundly in life-changing ways. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you, have you ever felt the shame? Have you ever had shame in your life over something you've done or not done or something your children have done, something you've said? Several years ago when I was in seminary, I was invited to one of the ritziest duck hunting clubs in America. And it was some friends of ours, and uh, they invited me to come. And it looked like it could be on the front of Cabela's magazine. And just lovely people. And I'd really never been in a situation or a place like that, to be honest. And so I pulled up, and immediately the first thing I noticed was $50,000 car, $80,000 car, $100,000 car, and I was driving about a $500 car at best. And I felt ashamed. And then we went in, and wonderful people... And we were talking, and, oh, what do you do? Oh, you're the vice president of Budweiser. Oh, wow. Oh, what do you do? And as we began to go around and talk, I realized that I was in a place with very educated people who had done incredibly well, and I felt ashamed to say I'm a, I'm a first-year seminary student. And then when it was time to go hunt, we went into the gun room, and I brought my own waders, which I got on discount at Bass Pro Shop, the cheapest they had, of course for fly fishing, not for duck hunting. And one of the guys said, I, Rusty, I'm sorry, you, you, you can't use those. You'll freeze to death. Those are for fly fishing. He said, why, why don't you just use ours? And, and by the way, just use one of our guns too. And I felt ashamed. I felt ashamed when I was there. The whole time, my car, my clothes, my possessions. Have you ever felt ashamed? In your lack of money? in your looks, in your house, in your education, maybe in your parents? Have you ever felt ashamed of Christ and what it is to be his disciple and what it means? Sometimes we are. We struggle sometimes with being ashamed of the person of Jesus, of our our faith. We can be ashamed to speak of him with friends Ashamed to read the Bible in public or at a coffee shop. Ashamed to talk to people about our first love. Ashamed to live how he says to live as his disciples in the world. Now the question then is, do you know why you feel ashamed? Do you know where shame comes from? About people? About your house? Your car? About your little brother or sister? About your faith? See, in your eyes they fall short of your models or mine or our expectations. So the reason I'm ashamed of my house is it falls short of your model house or my model house, what you believed your house should be. Or your clothes fall short of what Justin Bieber's wearing or whoever you get your, your designs from or... Or your parents, they don't match what you want them to be. When you find, let me back up and say it like this. And the reason then so often we're ashamed to know Jesus is he calls us to be very different, doesn't he? To love differently, to pursue relationships differently, to forgive differently, to give differently, to live on Sundays radically different. 
to dress differently and to speak differently. And when you find shame in your heart about Jesus or going to church or being around Christians, the, the problem is not Jesus or his message or the church. He, he is heroic and beautiful. The problem is often we've set up the wrong models or expectations in our life. Instead of Christ being our model, it's your best mate or your best friend. Or Hollywood or something you see in a magazine or what you read or what you find on Pinterest or Miley Cyrus or Oprah or whoever it might be. And this produces shame. Now look, in Hebrews 2 verse 11, this is what it says. He is not ashamed to call you his brothers or sisters. Listen, shame comes when there's a distance between two things. Please catch that. Shame comes when there's a distance between two things. And the greater the distance, the greater the shame. And the gospel says the greatest distance exists between us and God, between our polluted hearts and his perfect being. Yet Jesus took that shame, your shame, my shame of my guilt and sin upon the cross, and he's brought us so close now through faith in him that he says he's not afraid to call us his brothers. In other words, we're part of his family. We've been brought from here to here. So we we're now relationally close to God. And then the gospel gives us a new model for looking at life, which frees us from shame. So here's the main idea today. If you're taking notes, please write this down. The cross covers the distance sin puts between God and me. The cross covers the distance sin puts between God and me. Okay? Should we dive in? Okay. I'm going to dive in. How does Jesus remove the shame that exists between our polluted lives and God's holy being? How does he do that? There's three things we want to see from this text. First, verse 9, he tasted death for you. Notice those words. He tasted death for everyone. He, Jesus, on the cross, experienced the bitterness, sorrow, pain of death. All this in the Garden of Gethsemane. He describes it, Matthew 26, what's coming. He says, Father, if it's possible, let this cup that he's about to drink pass from me. It was the cup of death, the cup of God's punishment for disobedience that Jesus came to drink in our place. And you say, Rusty, what in the world does that mean? Well, here's what that means. In the ancient world, if you were about to wed a woman, one of the things that you did in the wedding ceremony is you took a cup. And when you drank it, ceremonially, what you're saying is all of her debt is now mine. Everything that was hers is mine. It's all upon me. I take her guilt. I take her shame. I take everything of hers now, and it's laid upon me. It is the marriage cup that Christ drank. The cross was Jesus drinking the cup of the wedding feast. He wed us, and therefore he took upon himself our debts and sin and tasted the punishment and death that we would have received. He tasted death. He drank the cup that we deserve when he wed us. And he's the groom, the redeemer, and we became the church, his bride. 
Now, why did he do it? Look in your Bibles there. Notice what it says. By the grace of God, he did it. So he tasted the punishment of death. He wed us to himself, took our guilt because of grace. Let me explain that. Grace means God moved himself to send Jesus as our substitute. And when Jesus tasted our punishment, it was to show his grace and love for you and for me. The motive, the initiative, and the action that saved you are entirely God's from his goodness. That's his grace. Now, who did Jesus taste death for then? Verse 9. Verse 9. That he might taste death for everyone. And you say, okay, wait a second, Rusty. For everyone of who? Because if Christ tasted death for them, then he took their punishment, right? And therefore, the whole world should be saved. Well, naturally, we think he's talking about the world here. And that's true in one sense. Jesus died to make it possible that anybody could be saved. But we must have to, we see the context here tells us who he's talking about. Verse 10 and 11 defines the everyone. He calls it a particular group. These are the names he gives. The heirs of salvation. Many sons of God. The sanctified. The brothers. The children. So what he's saying, everyone means Jesus tasted death for every heir of salvation. Every son of God. The church. It means he tasted the punishment you and I deserve. Years ago, I had uh, two American friends. I was struggling when I was living in Mongolia, and they showed up to just assist me and encourage me when I was there. And we were taking a trip, and we stopped at what's called a guans, which is a, a greasy, 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 greasy spoon. And so I ordered something. It was a bowl of soup, and they set it before us, and we were really hungry. And so we began to eat, and... My friends thought it was potato and beef soup. And they took one bite of the potatoes and they said, Rusty, what are these? These are not potatoes. And I told him, no, those are not potatoes. Those are big chunks of fat. And that's not beef. That's probably horse that you're eating. That was all they ate. <laughs> that was the end of their dinner. Now listen, there's an ancient rabbi who's got a proverb it goes like this he that eats of the pot knows the taste of the meat or horse or fat that's in it listen jesus is the captain of your salvation he came on a mission a mission of grace to die in your place he drank the wedding cup on the cross taking your guilt and your shame taking all the church's sin upon himself so that he could make her his bride. And he, as the groom, redeemed her from her guilt. He emptied the cup. Listen, Jesus drank it all. He drank the dregs. He drank all of our punishment. He wet us. He took all of our guilt, so that now we are free from any potential punishment from the Father. There is no more to drink. There is no more punishment left for us to serve, to take from our Father. So and from first to last, this is the reason verse 10 calls Jesus the founder, the captain, the hero of your salvation. He did it all. 
Point two. How has Jesus removed our shame? First, he tasted death for you. Second, he sanctifies you to become part of God's people. Look in your Bibles with me at verse 11 and 12. And I'll just read that. Actually, just verse 11. I'll read that once more. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one origin. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. I, I love that statement. I mean, that, that statement makes me want to dance. Well, not, not, not literally dance, but it gets me excited. He's not ashamed to call us brothers. Notice what he says here. Sanctified. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one origin. When we think of sanctification, often we only understand one part of the meaning, the ongoing part. In Christ, we're able more and more to live for God and to die to my flesh. This is called progressive sanctification, that you're growing in Christ-likeness and holiness. But notice here he's describing something that's happened in the past and that's finishing. He's describing a one-time event that happened to you in your conversion when you're born again. You are sanctified. It means Christ has once for all cleansed you from all your pollution to make you acceptable to God. And notice the sanctified, the church, and the sanctifier, Jesus, are all of one, it says. means Jesus is not one with everyone, or they would be saved, or everyone would be his, but Christ and his people, those he tasted death for, are one. We share one nature. The nature of God dwells in the believer, and it dwells in our Savior. Now, there's two results of this. Look in your Bibles there, of him making us positionally clean, sanctified before him. First is, he calls us brothers or sisters. You, you have a new identity. You're no longer polluted. You're no longer aliens before God. Jesus drank that cup, all of it. You're part of his family, and therefore he gives you this title. You are his brothers or his sisters. That's the first result of being sanctified. The second is, notice, there's no more shame. Do you see that there in your Bible? Now, what does that mean? Well, shame comes when there's a distance between two things. So the rich person often is ashamed to live next door to the poorer because there's a distance in their finances and the way they live. The man is ashamed at his daughter's gymnastics performance or grades in school because of the distance between his expectation and her performance. The New Zealand family that always wears flip-flops to church comes and visits Georgia, and they go to First Church Savannah, where everybody wears dresses and suits. And they feel ashamed because of the distance of their flip-flops and the way people are dressed there. You see, now what's remarkable is the greatest distance exists between a sinful, polluted, broken man and God who's holy and perfect. He is infinitely greater, more valuable, more beautiful, higher than we are. And we are infinitely lower, more broken, more rebellious than him. And so there exists a huge gulf of shame between us. 
And in Christ, he feels no shame to call us his brothers. Why? Ephesians 2.13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Christ stepped down. He took on flesh. He stepped down and took the shame of all of my guilt and sin upon the cross. The cross then covers the distance shame put between God and me. Jesus has brought us shamelessly close in position to the Father. How would you feel to meet the queen? Uh, You need to know that I was driving down the road one time and I did see Prince Harry. He was in front of me. He was waving at somebody, not at me. But I did see the back of his head. Now, that has nothing to do with my sermon, but I thought you ought to know that. (laughs) Um, How would you feel if you visited the queen? Let's just say she called you and she said, we've had a lottery And we want you to come to the palace. Oh, yes, just come. And you say, wow, that's pretty cool. And so you enter the palace, and it's white, it's beautiful, it's clean. And there sits the queen. She's beautiful. She's dressed to the nine and totally like a dream. And suddenly you realize you're in old, ripped-up clothes. You're fishing clothes. You forgot to change. And... You're a mechanic, and you've got greasy hands and a greasy face, and you forgot to wash. And when you speak, all this foulness suddenly comes out of your mouth. How would you feel? You'd probably feel ashamed. Why? Because of the distance between your position and your action and hers. Friends, the distance between God and man is infinitely greater between than between any two humans. And Christ has taken that shame on the cross when he died. He drank that cup. Now I want to ask you, can you think of something you have done or maybe you continue to do that brings or has brought great shame into your life or to your family? The enemy wants your whole identity to be bound up in this one event or this continued struggle. He reduces this one event to your identity. He sums you up. This is who you are, and you can never escape the guilt of it. And so when we think of worshiping, the shame comes on. When we think of coming before the Lord, the shame is there. And I want to tell you, The cup Jesus drank was the cup of that shame, that very shame. He knew all the shame of your sin when he chose to love you and die for you and take the punishment of you. And he has set you free from beginning to end. And he now says, you are sanctified, come. You are washed, come. You are brothers and sisters, come. So, if the Most High accepts you shamelessly, then we must not allow the world, the flesh, or the devil to take that shame and again develop a distance between us and our Creator. Here's point three, and we'll finish with this. He brings you the glory. He brings you the glory. Verse 10, if you'll just read it with me, please. Verse 10. 
For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. The story of Jesus is here. I'm going to skip up a little bit to verse 7. It says this, For a little while, Jesus became man, lower than his creatures. But because of what he did, the Father raised him, crowned him with glory and honor. Now, verse 10, he says there he's become the captain of salvation. The word you might have, you can translate it several ways, might mean champion, might mean hero, but the idea is a military leader that leads an army, goes in the battle, makes a way, clears a path, and conquers an enemy. That's just exactly what Jesus did. He made a way for his people to be brought close to the Creator. Then he tells us he brings many sons to glory. The captain then brings the saved, us, home to glory. No longer as sinners, no longer as brothers in Christ, ashamed, but now, or no longer as separated from him, but as brothers of Christ, sisters in Christ, brought close by his work. The captain finished his work on the cross and removed our shame. How do we think and live this? How do you take this from your head to your heart? So you go, okay, Rusty, I understand there's no more shame. But practically, how does that affect your everyday life? And I want to ask you, what motivates you, my friends, in your relationship with God and his world? Is it shame that drives you? Or is it the gospel of grace and love for Christ? When we are motivated by shame, you will almost always seek to bridge the gap between us and our expectation, our model, or what we think things should be with your own effort, and then we grow angry and discouraged when we fail. So what do you mean? Can you give me some examples? Yes. When motivated by shame in your parenting, you will find yourself getting angry, even yelling at your children because their performance is below or there's a distance between it and your expectation. And often the greater the gap, the more shame we feel. So if he fumbles four times, oh, the shame we feel. When shame motivates your possessions, you will be motivated to take out huge debt to bridge the gap between your car your house, your clothes, your furniture. You have, and the model you get from Southern Living or Pinterest or wherever, which I quite like those things. I'm not saying they're bad. And always apologetic about not having the perfect house or the perfect car because there's a distance. You feel the shame. When shame motivates your relationships, you can never have anyone in your house. You can never have anyone close to your family because of the huge difference between your dirty home and your imperfect children and what you believe you must be. When shame motivates your relationships, you will lie to make yourself look greater than you are in sports, in finances, 
in education and achievements because the distance between your model of manhood and your model of womanhood and what you know you really are. And lastly, when shame motivates your relationship with God, you will dread coming to church, worshiping, spending time with God, because you always feel you are a disappointment to him rather than the very one Christ died to adopt into his family. Now, the problem is not Jesus or the church or your Christian friends. Maybe one of the reasons of your shame is you've modeled your life after the wrong people, the wrong pursuits, the wrong dreams. You've set up a gospel-less expectation for your life, your spouse, your children, their sports, their academics. What do I mean? Well, this, last thing. The gospel removes shame. Amen? The gospel removes shame. Your models have great control over your life, often more than your faith. So what's the answer, Rusty? Psalm 8611, David says it like this. Unite my heart to serve your name. Your heart must be united behind one model, one commander, one thing seeking to imitate. We must live life before an audience of one. One opinion must matter most to us. One relationship we value and cherish more than all others. One person we want to please in our relationships, in our parenting, and in our possessions. And so his gospel message then brings grace, love, and freedom in all those areas of life through the promise that he took the shame between God and you. Now by faith alone, he declares you to be his brother, sanctified, brought near. Let me say it like this. When Adam felt the shame of his sin, what did he do? He ran. He brought a distance between he and God. And that's exactly what shame will do to you every time unless you're resting in the gospel that Jesus just took the shame of my sin on the cross. So we don't have to be like Adam. We don't have to run and hide. We can run to the Father knowing he's been brought close and I am forgiven and washed. And what about towards the world? And we'll finish here. We must replace the models of the world which give us shame when we don't achieve them with gospel motivation. 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, we do all for the glory of God. The Christian's goal and model in parenting, playing sports, going to school, decorating your house, working, is for the glory of God. So that the question we ask in all these things is simply, how do I do this to show the greatness of God's grace his love, his holiness, compassion. How do I show Jesus and how I react towards my son fumbling four times? How do I show Jesus towards my daughter who brings home a C? And when your response is motivated by gospel, what you'll find is there is no more room for shame. The gospel destroys shame towards God and shame towards our world. From the world's models and the shame that comes when we don't meet its expectation, now we are free to live our life without shame. Before the one who loves us so very much, has drawn us so very close, calls us sanctified, and calls us brothers and sisters. Amen? Let's pray.
Lord, we don't want to be a people that are motivated by shame. Shame always comes from a distance. And when we look at our own life, we see that there's a distance between all these various models of what my children should be, of what I should be, what my house should look like, what my car should be, what my salary should be, and therefore we feel shame. Lord, we want to have a different model to glorify the Savior and rest in His grace. And a different question we ask is the glory of Christ being revealed in how I react in all these areas, in my home, in what I purchase, in what I look at, and what I value. Lord, I just want to take some time now and we want to just confess our shame before you and whatever models we've had outside of the glory of Christ and not believing the gospel and so that when we sin, we run away from you coming back to the gospel. Lord, show us those things now that we might confess them to you. Jesus, we praise you that through the cross you despised its shame and now through all those who have put their faith in Christ and repented of their sins simply by grace, you're not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. You draw us close. We are in the family and we praise you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.